0: It was the mirror. So to draw the conclusion, let them be still.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number seventy-eight of the Exploring Antinatalism Podcast a podcast showcasing the wide range of perspectives and ideas throughout antinatalism as it exists today through interviews with antinatalists and non-antinatalist thinkers and creators of all kinds. Now running four years strong, I'm your host, Amanda Sukenik, and today I'm speaking with Professor Emeritus of Population Studies of the Department of Biology of Stanford University and author of the infamous 1968 book, The Population Bomb, Paul R. Ehrlich. And joining me today as special guest co-host is professor of philosophy at Alto University School of Business, antinatalist philosopher, Mati Heide. Professor Ehrlich, welcome to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. What a true pleasure it is to have you with us today.
2: Nice to be here.
1: Uh, And Mati, welcome back to Exploring Antinatalism. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being my co-host today. Thank you. Uh, Paul, you are, of course, bet, perhaps best known for your infamous 1980, uh, 68 book, The Population Bomb, which we can't wait to speak with you about today. But I was wondering if we could start off today's show by having you tell us just a little bit about your most recent book, Uh, Life, a Journey Through Science and Politics, which is your new autobiography, which I greatly enjoyed, by the way. It's an excellent book. Uh, and so uh, if I may ask you, who is Paul Ehrlich and what can you tell me about the new book, Life, a Journey Through Science? Of politics?
2: Well, Paul Ehrlich uh, was a kid who loved nature and animals, and particularly butterflies. And uh, those pursuits led him to seeing the disappearance of animals, and particularly butterflies. I, For instance, I found out in I was living in North Jersey when I was a kid, and I discovered that I couldn't raise monarch butterflies anymore because they had sprayed so much DDT around that if I brought in food plants from outdoors, uh, the caterpillars simply starved. Um, so that led from one thing to another, to another, and eventually a professional career as an evolutionary biologist. And I got hired at Stanford University for uh, to teach, biology. And um, the only commandments, I should say, the only uh, tasks that I was charged with at Stanford, the only time I had any discussion with the administration about what I should do as a faculty member was the day they hired me, the chair asked, could you teach a course in entomology and another one in evolution? And my answer was yes. Um, And my evolution course got to be very popular because in the 10 weeks of the course, I spent nine weeks describing where we had come from and the last week describing where it appeared we were going. And the 10th week lecture proved very popular. And uh, Stanford alumni are very much involved in the university. And they started inviting me to give talks outside the university and then eventually to do radio and TV programs. And uh, that's how it started because I'm a born blabbermouth. And, uh, you know, being able to talk to 3,000 people at a time instead of 25 students uh, was wonderful for a propagandist. And of course, when Johnny Carson got involved, and I was talking to 15 million people at a time, that really was great for a blabber mouth. So there, you can now throw away the book, you got the basic story.
1: (laughs) That's the basics in a nutshell, for sure. Yeah, well, it's an incredible life that you've built, and, you know, as the book details, starting with, you know, an interest in butterflies, and it grew from there. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful answer, uh, Paul. Um, Mati, I do believe that uh, that you're up next. Would you like to ask a question?
0: Okay, so... Uh, Antinatalism is pretty close to what you have been doing all these years. The word is not defined in English dictionaries, but there are entries in two major French ones, and they connect antinatalism with reducing birth rates, so with population control. Now, at least since the Brundtland Report in 1987, the United Nations has insisted that educating girls in the developing world countries is all the population policy that the world needs. So my obvious question to you and to tell our audience is, what do you think of this position, the United Nations position and its chances of succeeding? Well,
2: let's put it this way. If we could give women around the world equal rights, equal opportunity, equal respect, then I suspect we would see the birth rate going in the direction it should, that is below two births per woman, because we desperately need to shrink the human population. And from my ethical standpoint, the way to shrink it is to limit the input, not maximize the output, not kill people, but take good care of people. Unfortunately, I don't see any sign of women being given equal rights and opportunities and respect around the world. We've had a war on women in the United States, uh, which the idiots have won. Uh, And so uh, I think if we're gonna solve the problem, one of the things we need to do, besides working very hard to change that situation, is to develop um, more family planning programs, which turn out to be cheap And to help with education, that is, if you're trying to give women education and rights and so on, um, the data show that where there have been good family planning programs, that's been one of the side effects. But above all, um, what disgusts me is that even the demographers don't understand that 8 billion people is already depending, well, if you take the word of the best economists in the world, Partha Dasgupta. It's almost 5 billion too many already. Uh, And if you listen to the demographers, when they're talking about population projections, they do not project what's going to happen when the climate gets even hotter and so on. And the death rates, which are already starting to go up, are going to go up higher. So anybody who is fighting against antinatalism is basically fighting to kill people. Uh, And, uh, For example, with the anti-abortion laws in the United States, uh, the idiots in our Congress have been successfully killing women because you do not change significantly abortion rates by passing anti-abortion laws. What you do is drive women to more difficult and dangerous abortions. Um, And the the, um, Ted Cruz's and Donald Trump's and the other morons should be really aware of that and at least admitting what they're doing sorry those are not the opinions of stanford university unfortunately
1: well, we we appreciate those opinions here on exploring antinatalism, for sure. Um, when the Population Bomb was written in 1968, the word antinatalism existed, but it was not yet used as a philosophical term to describe a moral position against procreation. So I was curious if you could tell us what your familiarity with the term antinatalism is or isn't, as it may be.
2: Well, it suffers uh, and suffered for Um, some of the reasons the population bomb suffered. That is, antinatalism or population control and so on are complex subjects. And the population bomb led people to think uh, that you wanted to destroy the population. And antinatalism has led some people to think that you don't want anybody, any more children. And, of course, my own personal position is... uh, I I have a daughter and two um, uh, genetic granddaughters, and I think it really helps a human being to have the experience of raising the next generation, and we certainly need to do so and to educate them very well. Uh, But if antinatalism, as some people have interpreted, it means no more children. No, that's not a a plan that I have. It's a plan that Society tends to be moving towards. I mean, if the Trump motto is no more children, no more society, no more civilization, he's doing everything he possibly can uh, to make sure there are no more births. But it's not a position I share.
1: All right. Uh, Mati, I do believe it's your turn. Uh, you have been uh,
2: accused of being an
0: antinatalist, my sources say. So I have two questions about that. First, how do you plead guilty or not guilty? And second, uh, what do you make of such an accusation?
2: Well, it goes back to what I was just saying. If it, if antinatalism, the person asking the question, means no more births, then I am against that position. If it means regulating the number of births so we end up with a smaller population, uh, that is where the children are properly cared for and so on, and where there are enough births always, to prevent the population from disappearing, but also to prevent the population from getting beyond its resources, then I'm guilty of being an anti-natalist. So it depends really on how you define anti-natalism. Well, I certainly I've we done my best to get the birth rate down. The birth rate virtually everywhere is too high.
0: Yes. Okay. I I understand that uh, in according to amanda and my definition of antinatalism you are not an antinatalist you are you may be a selective pronatalist but that's another <laughs> other thing altogether
2: well, that's another tricky issue
1: yeah I, I mean by our definition antinatalism does mean no births and we'll get to a little bit about that in, in a bit um my next question to you would be paul in the population bomb you lay out um 11 on the back of the book actually 11 statements which you you can uh are mankind's inaudible inalienable rights the right to eat well the right to drink pure water the right to breathe clean air the right to decent uncrowded shelter the right to enjoy natural beauty the right to enjoy. um avoid regimentation, the right to avoid pesticide poisoning, the right to freedom from a thermonuclear war, the right to limit families, the right to educate our children, the right to have grandchildren. And my question from there is, if these rights cannot be guaranteed, do those potential people we might create have the right to not exist?
2: They have the right what?
1: To not exist. If you can't assure those things in the lives that we might create do those lives have the right to not exist?
2: Well, uh, one of the favorite hobbies of a um, 300,000 year old hominin uh, that named itself Homo sapiens, but has shown very little sign of sapiens, uh, is making up rights. And I was really playing off of that. Um, If you were talking to a member of the NASDP, the Nazi Party in Germany, uh, or the GOP, the Nazi Party in the United States. Uh, I'm pretty sure they would say that there are certain kinds of people that don't have a right to exist and that our right is to see to it that we don't have to share the planet with them. So I think making up rights is fundamentally silly, but I was taking advantage of a silly hobby. Uh that uh, the UN likes to make up rights, made up a long list of development goals and so on, none of which it's doing anybody's doing anything to really meet, uh, but they like talking about the rights and so on. And I guess that's a way we do politics, but I'm not impressed by its effectiveness.
1: Okay, I, but before I hand it to you, Monty, just I mean just another way of saying it, I guess would be if, if we can't assure a good quality of life, you know, if 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 nothing that we you know three of us would accept as a, a an adequate, you know, uh, life that we'd if, like if to if we
2: couldn't even give them a chance, yeah, then I would not be in favor of having children. My interestingly, uh, the first time this came up to me was when my aunt and uncle, just around the end of the First World War, produced a baby, and they said. He had been in the military in the uh, second world war. I'm sorry. He had been in the military in the second world war and they had debated for a long time, whether or not it was a world, they thought it was reasonable to enter a child into. They ended up deciding yes. Uh, and I think since that child has now had a, uh, a fairly long and successful life, they made the right decision. Uh, But I think more people ought to be thinking about that. In other words, all this emphasis on how many babies should be shifted to how well can we take care of our babies? How well can we feed and educate them and so on and give them decent lives? And from my perspective, we've already, we've been moving basically uh, since Ronald Reagan in the United States in a direction where lives are less valued and we put less attention into it. I was at a major university for 60 years and it's a university that no longer does anything to educate people to what's going on in the world. All it does is develop people to become more Josh Hawley's and Ted Cruz's and so on. And uh, it, it has a school of sustainability in which you're basically forbidden to mention population. That is, you can have a school of sustainability where what you're going to sustain is never specified. And uh, it's very depressing. But our universities have failed us. They did a great job early on. The, The original education system was designed, the public education system, when we began moving into industrial production. That is when it was no longer uh, cottage industries supplying goods. And you had to have workers who could tell time so they could show up at the plant at the right time and do simple mathematics uh, when they were designing things and so on and working with blueprints. And so the system was developed to supply the wage slaves for that system. Uh, not the offspring of the people who run places like Stanford University, but the wage slaves who are going to work in the factories and show up on time and so on. And the still designed to do that, not to produce people who will be sensible, knowledgeable, ethical people for a world that has changed totally uh, since the days of the Industrial Revolution. Uh,
1: thank you for your insight into that, Paul. Um, Mattia, do you believe you're next? Yes, yes.
0: Those are admirable ideas, and and I have found a personal way of of getting around that that problem. I I am a philosopher, and I I teach at the School of Business, and I'm supposed to be teaching business ethics, and instead I preach them about the wrongness of the Sustainable Development Goals system, and how that doesn't change anything in the world. But anyway, uh, now I have a uh- philosophical question because i'm I'm a philosopher. Uh, you have for a long time advocated the reduction of birth rates and controlling population growth. that's what what you have done. but why? can you tell us the audience why do you have a specific ethical or political or philosophical ideal or theory that drives you
2: in this matter? Well, my own philosophy uh, is expressed by um uh, my my Favorite book on business schools is called Close the Business Schools. And a famous line in it, I think Guy's name was Martin, who wrote the book, A Business School Professor, was business school is the place that teaches you how to take money out of other people's pockets and put it in yours. Uh, And I think one of the major mistakes Homo sapiens made was the financialization of value that everything and everyone is judged by how much money they have. You can have a blithering idiot who invented a car and wants to send uh, people uh, to outer space all the time, and he's respected because he has a lot of money. Uh, And I doubt if he could give you a coherent story on why we have money and what's the advantage of money and why did we go to money and why did we financialize the world and so on. So my philosophy, which I think is wrong, uh, was basically if you could educate people to how the world actually works, people in our kind of species would become, we're already very, very cooperative. In other words, the success of Homo sapiens is founded on learning to work together, have language that allowed us to coordinate our activities and so on. We evolved to be cooperative uh, but uh, we also evolved. I'm afraid to be competitive, and the competitiveness is overwhelming. But I still would like to think that you and I and the anti-natalist movement and so on could change our behavior in time before we pay the big penalty.
0: Yes, uh, funny that you should mention cars and car uh, manufacturers uh, in my business ethics business ethics class. I use the example of Henry Ford and Fordism and, and all that to explain to them how, how the money aspect, the, the aspect that you are talking about, how that has just invaded everything. And so, but I'm I'm going on to what. uh
2: I heard a good Ford story yesterday that I didn't know. Um, it turned out he was he was a bad guy in many respects, no question. Hitler had his anti-Semitic book in his library when Hitler was in prison after the Beer Hole Putsch. Um, but he sent his people to junkyards after the Model A had been in production for a while to find out what parts you could still use from the, uh, the junked cars. And it turned out that the kingpin and the drive and the steering system lasted and lasted and lasted. There was no, um, basically, no wear on them. So you could take a kingpin from an ancient Model A and put it in a new one and not lose anything. So, what did he do? He instructed his people to put less effort into making kingpins, make them shoddier uh, so they don't last longer than the rest of the car. That's yes, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, well, thank you to you both uh for all of that. Um Paul, we don't have much, we don't have much left. I just want to uh before I go to my closing question, I just want to insert a little bit here about, you know, um sort of you know, the re- just explain a little bit of the reason why uh antinatalists like Mati and I would recommend no births as opposed to less births, is because you know, we believe that life in general produces all of this suffering, right? And we keep doing it without there's all different kinds of antinatalist arguments. It's, it's very risky to produce new lives. We do it without consent, um, and we don't really have like we shouldn't really have the the right to keep producing lives without you know uh, that that produce all of this suffering. What would you say to that kind of argument? That you know, it's it, why do we keep bringing here if people here if really the only expectation is that these are beings I that think- are going to suffer and they're going to die
2: i think we evolved uh evolution demands basic reproduction with variation and uh it did a very nice job of programming homo sapiens to produce more homo sapiens uh and at 91 i'm my urge to do so has dropped considerably uh but if i were 19 uh your argument would not have had any impact on me whatsoever. So uh, I'm afraid we're programmed to go in that direction. And what I can say, looking at you guys and me, is that some people have had wonderful lives. And so that that, that urge uh, in our parents uh, did us in a way, I think, a favor. Don't you? At least I feel I've been lucky to get to know a planet and other people and so on that is enlivening, you know, your the famous statement by a lepidopterist, or a part-time lepidopterist, Vladimir Navikov, who uh, wrote Lolita, but also uh, worked on butterflies. We had, he was a correspondent of mine when I was in graduate school and we exchanged uh, information on butterflies And when he published Lolita, I sent him what we called a reprint card. That was a little postcard that said, dear sir or ma'am, I'd really like a copy of your paper, XXXX, and gave my address at the University of Kansas at the time. And I put in Lolita and sent it to him. And I never heard from him again. But in my memoir, if I remember correctly, I quote, his view of uh, life in general. He said, uh, it's obvious that human life is a bare, a brief crack of light between two infinities of darkness. And I remember the first infinity of darkness as quite pleasant, Uh, at least I don't have any memories of having to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or anything like that. And I'm about to enter the second infinity of darkness and I doubt if I'll be able to give you a report, but if there is email, I'll send you one.
0: I I have a question about uh, darkness and, and butterflies, kind of. This is a Norwegian question. I believe that you knew back in the day two notable Norwegian philosophers, the fatalist, Peter Vessel Zapfe, and the deep ecologist Arne Ness. If that's correct, if you knew them, uh, what did you think about their views in, in comparison to yours? I like I mean, that
2: Ness was a hero of mine. Uh, I liked anybody who thought about what the hell we were doing. In other words, as a philosopher you perfectly well know, uh, philosophy is barely touched on in our education systems and people are not asked the questions of why, what, how, and so on. Um, A colleague of mine has just completed a book on free will. Uh, I, I can give you the title, I can't tell you the book, Entirely, but the title is going to be Determined. And that means something to you, but it would not mean anything to 90% of the faculty and students at Stanford University.
0: Yes, well, when I hear about free will and determinism, I go,
1: ah,
0: and it's the, the famous painting.
1: Yeah, this has been really wonderful, Paul. Um, I just, we just have one last question then we'll we'll let you go take care of your back, as you said. Um, so now that the autobiography is out, you know, what's next for you? You know, I know that you're always staying busy uh besides getting new new hearing aids. What what, what are you working on now? Um, and how can our audience best help to support your work?
2: Well, what I'm working on now um uh, is with my colleague Gerardo Sabayos, who's an ecologist. Uh, my, my closest colleagues are all Mexican at the moment. And with Gerardo, uh, we have a paper just accepted in PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy, uh, on the way we're destroying the Tree of Life. Uh, and it'll be out. It's some, called something like the mutilation of Darwin's Tree of Life. And it'll be out sometime in the next few weeks. He and I and another Mexican colleague, are writing a book uh, on the uh, extinction of populations, not species, but the much more important previous thing of getting rid of populations, like the elephant's about to go, but of course it once covered much of Africa. Now there are just a few small populations left, and when they're going, the elephant's gone, and that one is in copy editing at the moment. And I'm writing a book on the nose with my colleague, Sandra Khan, who's also Mexican. Uh, and uh, we wrote a book together on the jaws and we're doing one now on the list, misunderstood aspects of the nose. Uh, so that and trying to keep up with Donald Trump keeps me busy. I have a prediction though. You may have heard that Trump was indicted. You heard that, I predict that the American media will mention that again. I think I'm right.
1: I think that's a very likely prediction for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, all, it's, it's been a pleasure.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you guys.
1: It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Paula. Thank you for being our guest today on the Exploring Antinatalism podcast.
2: That was <laughs> thank my you very, pleasure. Thank you, you take very much. care.
0: Uh, before closing out today, just our thanks to everyone who has read our new article, imposing a lifestyle: a new argument for anti-natalism on the Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics website.
1: That's right, Mati. The link uh, will be in the description below. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to share it. Uh, and if anybody would like to make a response of some kind, be it a video or something written, we would love to hear from you. So let us know in the comments below, or you can email me at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. Thank you so much to everyone again. Thank you for listening to the Exploring Antinatalism podcast. Please follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Exploring Antinatalism can also be heard on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon.com, and so many other platforms. You can email me at exploringantinatalism at gmail.com. Website designed by Visions Noirs. Please follow him at www.bilenoir.com and follow him on Instagram. Logo art by Life Sucks. Please subscribe to him on YouTube and check out his shop on Etsy at www.etsy.com slash shop sucks publishing. Music by Mati Hyri. You can hear the whole song, Life is a Sexually Transmitted Disease with a Mortality Rate of 100%, by following the link in the description. And make sure to also read his academic paper, which inspired the song, If You Must Give Them a Gift, Then Give Them the Gift of Non-Existence, in the Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics on cambridge.org. Links below. All the best, and bye for now. <laughs> Life is no thrill
0: compared to Neil Life is no thrill It's worse than nil, So to draw the right conclusion Let them be still